Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization project based at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Professor Mehran Kamrava, Professor and Director of the Center for International and Regional Studies at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in Qatar. He's the author of a number of articles and books, and I can't list them all, Mehran. I do apologize, but that would take up the entire podcast. But I'd just like to mention a couple of them, which, which are absolutely wonderful. Troubled Waters, Insecurity in the Persian Gulf by Cornell, uh, Inside the Arab State with Oxford, The Impossibility of Palestine, Qatar, Small State, Big Politics with, with Cornell, uh, A History of the Modern Middle East. There's, there's, there's too many to mention, really, Mehran. And it's, You're very kind, Simon. Thank you so much. It's, it's a wonderful back catalogue, and I'm really excited to, to get to talk to you about some of it today. So thank you so much for joining us. I'm honored to be here, Simon. Thank you. Thank you. It's very kind. So, Mehran, can we start just by, uh, by you telling us a little bit about how you got interested and involved in, in the field of Middle East studies and Middle Eastern politics, please? Sure. Uh, In many ways, I am a child of the Iranian revolution, having spent my teenage years in Iran as the revolution was unfolding in 1978-79. And for better or for worse, that event shaped uh, my outlook on life. Uh, This was a time when I was beginning to understand the world around me And the prism through which I began understanding the world around me was through the Iranian revolution. So in graduate school, I decided to write a dissertation on the causes of the Iranian revolution. And the more I studied Iran, I discovered that the phenomena that gave rise to the Iranian revolution could be found in other parts of the developing world, particularly across other parts of the Middle East, and the rest is history. I became interested in Middle Eastern studies from there. Sure. That, that's really interesting that, that you have this, this personal experience and, and that's opened the door to, to such a, a vast career. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, reflecting back on that, on that graduate dissertation, how prescient do you think your, was your analysis, if you were to reflect back on it? Well, my dissertation was, I wrote my dissertation in the 1980s, and uh, as I was exploring the causes of the Iranian revolution, there was, at the time, there was a lot of focus on the state. As you know, there was a movement within the discipline of political science in the 1980s to bring the state back in. And although I was deeply influenced by this current of intellectual thought, I was also unsatisfied by the almost complete neglect of Western social science, of the importance of culture and cultural dynamics that were so consequential in shaping the outcome of the Iranian revolution and what followed thereafter. So I I don't want to say I was prescient, but I think as time has progressed since the 1980s, some of the questions that I raised in my PhD dissertation and some of the discussion of the importance of the cultural resonance of a revolutionary ideology have uh, withstood the test of time. 
That's really interesting to hear you say that, because I think that that tension between culture and the state and the way that plays out, I think that's something that, that resonates across your other aspects of your work. Certainly when I read it, I, I think I can, reflecting on this, I think I can see that type of tension. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Who were the, the, the key thinkers that were inspiring your work at this point? One was my own teacher, John Dunn, at Cambridge University. He has recently retired. Right. And the other was a, uh, is a very uh, famous Harvard professor uh, named Theda Scotchpole. Uh, Scotchpole is the figure who brought the state back in. And back in 1979, she published what soon became one of the central canons of the discipline, States and Social Revolutions. But I was also deeply uh, impressed by the writings at the time of Barrington Moore, particularly his work on um, the way that different revolutions can take different outcomes based on the role of the middle classes. They could have fascist outcomes or communist or socialist outcomes or bourgeois and democratic outcomes. And Barrington Moore's uh, analyses um, I, I still remember having shaped my um, perceptions of how the Iranian revolution unfolded. That's, yeah, really interesting and key text there, real, really important and influential texts. So where did, where did your career go after, after the PhD at Cambridge then? Well, I have to admit that um, I took a detour from Middle Eastern studies because... Uh, Almost immediately, I realized that um, in in looking at revolutions, uh, there was there were similar phenomena that were present in other parts of what at the time we used to call the third world. So my um, most immediate book after my PhD dissertation, which was published as Revolution in Iran, Roots of Turmoil. But then I became very interested in the study of political development and the relationship between state and society in developing countries, the way that states resist... Uh, that societies resisted penetration by the state or in some time, in some instances, were shaped and influenced by it. And so for a number of years, I wrote um, on um, uh, development politics, um, looking at broader application of how revolutions unfolded. But I also uh, never completely... Um, uh, did away with my interest on the study of Iran. So in 92, I published uh, a book on Iranian political history, but I also published something called Revolutionary Politics. And soon thereafter, I looked at, uh, I published a book called Politics and Society in the Third World. But then I have to say that um, as I was coming up for promotion and tenure, I remembered that I had been hired as an expert on the Middle East and I thought <laughs> I should probably publish something or write something on the Middle East. So in 1998, I published a book uh, called Democracy in the Balance, uh, the Culture and Society in the Middle East, which I looked at the... Um, 
social dynamics uh, that um, were pervasive across the Middle East. I don't want to say I was at the time uh, enamored with uh, social dynamics, but I did pay a lot of attention. Uh, if you remember at the time, one of the intellectual or one of the exciting currents of thought in the social sciences in the uh, early 1990s was the study of civil society Indeed, and how yeah. civil societies were the engine of democracy. Sure. And I started looking at civil society in the Middle East. So that became one of my central preoccupations, the study of civil society organizations and their relationship with state and instruments of power. And uh, from there, I uh, became uh, increasingly, uh, or I increasingly rediscovered my own uh, love uh, of the study of the Middle East. And so then in 2005, I wrote uh, a political history of the Middle East and uh, then um, subsequent books on the topic since. Sure. And, and I want to talk to you a little bit about your, your political history of the Middle East, because I think a number of scholars have, have tackled it. A number of scholars have embarked on doing such uh, quite an intimidating task, I imagine. But I think yours is, is certainly one of the, the better accounts that I've read. And I wonder, how do, you, how do you embark on such a project, Mehran? Because you've got, obviously, almost a century, or in some cases, over a century of, of modern history to, to engage with. How do, you, how do you even start with such, with such, with such, a, such a task? I have to uh, admit, Simon, for me, this was uh, the book, uh, Political History of the Modern Middle East, was the product of teaching the topic for a number of years. Right. And I always found that uh, my students really didn't have a sufficient grounding in history, but I also wanted them to have as much as possible a thorough understanding and grounding of the political dynamics, but also economic dynamics uh, that have shaped the region, particularly after World War II. And of course, um, it is almost impossible to pick an arbitrary start date, World War sure. II or World War One, or shortly thereafter, the demise of the Ottomans. So as much as possible, I decided to go to the beginning, look at some of the historical roots. So as you know, the book is really divided into two uh, uh, parts. One part uh, presents a historical chronology from the appearance of Islam up until um, contemporary times and traces the rise and fall of uh, consequential empires and uh, civilizations that continue to, uh, in one way or another, shape the destiny of Middle Eastern states to this day. And then um, I designed the book the way I teach the class. Right, uh, okay. What are some of the topics that a student needs to have a good sense of uh, nationalism, economic development, social movements, the Arab-Israeli conflict. And uh, in some ways, uh, it's a mighty task and 
one is bound to have to resort to some generalizations in one place or another. But as much as possible, I have sought to present a complete and thorough picture uh, of the politics and history of the Middle East in a way that uh, both students and specialists can benefit from the book at different levels. Well, I, I think you succeed in that regard, Mehran. I think for for me, going into it, uh, I was I was rereading that for for my latest book project, and I was in awe, to be honest, of the way that you dealt with such a a wealth of material. And I think bringing together the the political, the historical, and the economic is is perhaps the best way of of capturing the what perhaps are the fundamental issues that you're looking at across your your body of work this relationship between the state people and culture i think it's a really really fascinating project and anyone who's not read it i i strongly urge you to simon you're very kind i am honored and humbled by your uh, your endorsement of the book thank Thank you so very much. Well, it's, it speaks for itself, Mehran. It's a really powerful and, and well-put-together book. Um, Thank you. The, another one that I, I enjoyed recently is perhaps, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is, is your latest offering, um, Inside the Arab State. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Uh, th- that is, uh, uh, in 2018, I was fortunate to have two books come out almost simultaneously. One is Inside the Arab State, and the other is Troubled Waters, Insecurity in the Persian Gulf. But uh, the Arab State is the latest book. So for people who've not read them, and I'm, I'm very privileged to have the time to, to sit down and, and read them, can you just offer a, a brief synopsis of particularly the Inside the Arab State book, please? Um, sure. Uh, as you know, after 2011, the question that has occupied most of our time in Middle Eastern studies is why did the Arab Spring turn into this prolonged dark winter uh, with which we are currently contending? And this is the central task that I set before myself. What happened or where did things go wrong, uh, to put it crudely? And I set out to write a book that looks at how Arab states uh, had this spring. Why did these uh, uprisings began and what process did they follow and what were their consequences. And very briefly, my main argument is that what we saw in late 2010, uh, early 2011, was the eruption of a series of social movements. Some of these social movements, uh, one or two of them, uh, evolved into what might be called spontaneous revolutions or mass uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt. A few of them uh, degenerated into civil wars in places like Libya, Syria, um, to a lesser extent in Yemen, uh, to, uh, to a lesser extent in Bahrain, but certainly in Yemen. And then some of them were for one reason or another suppressed in places like Bahrain. And then uh, the wave was 
countered with a very determined counter-revolution that emanated from right here where I'm sitting in the Persian Gulf with Saudi Arabia taking the lead in a region-wide counter-revolution to contain uh, the, this wave of social change and political change. And so this really is what I set out to better understand for myself and to better explain uh, in the book Inside the Arab State. And I think you do it again incredibly well by by drawing on history and and culture and the way in which ruling elites have have mobilized historical narratives have mobilized culture and created these political structures that that have limited the capacity for for political expression thank you yes i discovered uh uh, I am still a firm believer in the importance of culture, but increasingly what we see, particularly in places like the Arab world, is that those with power begin to shape narrative, even with the spread of social media, with the spread of the digital media. And and so discourse has become oftentimes a victim to instruments of power. And so I look at how the state has been able to manipulate or at least shape and influence uh, some of uh, some of the pervasive ideologies, some of the uh, cross-national or transnational currents, such as sectarianism. But at the same time, we discover that in many instances, in places like Tunisia, Morocco, Iran, Algeria, Egypt, elsewhere here in the Arabian Peninsula, society also uh, beats to its own rhythm. Life goes on. And although state is important, there is a big chunk of society that operates according to its own logic and its own needs um, and its own uh, rhythm. And I think it's it's fascinating to hear that that rhythm come out. Um, while I I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, it wasn't the most cheery of of reads. It's not the the happiest of tales that you tell. I fear, and I wonder, looking forward, Mehran, where where do you see things playing out? How do you think how do you think the region's going to play out in the in the immediate future? Um, unfortunately, what I'm about to say, you yourself are too familiar with. <laughs> uh, you know, every uh, I, I I think every once in a while, those of us who study the region, the Middle East, look around and say, "Well, it can't get any worse," <laughs> and then it does. And then a few years later, we say the same thing: "Well, it can't get any worse," and then it does. Um, a few years ago. Um, in the 90s, I was quite optimistic, for example, about Iran. Sure. And um, that optimism has begun to fade, uh, unfortunately. I am uh, right now, in, uh, I, as I look around at, the, um, at societies that sacrificed so much, uh, people who... Uh, with their clenched fists, did away with their daily routine and poured into the streets of Cairo and Tunis and uh, Rabat to demand better lives and 
seven, eight years later, they don't have much to show for it. And there's a, there's a sense of, uh, I don't want to say despair quite, but a sense of hopelessness or at least a lack of optimism in the future that has become pervasive across the region. So looking at the next um, five years or so, unfortunately, I see more of the same. I don't see grounds for optimism. And I don't see statesmen in, in the region. I think across regional capitals where political elites who shape the destiny of millions of people. Unfortunately, I don't see them making difficult decisions. I see them uh, making decisions based on immediate uh, short-term returns and and self-aggrandizement in ways that do not necessarily uh, serve the good of their people or their country in the in the for uh, in the a short to medium term. And that's certainly a charge that's levied at, at Palestinian leaders time and time again. But it's interesting to hear you, you reflect on that across the region more broadly. And um, I fear that I'm inclined to, to agree with you, which is, yeah, a, a pretty tragic set of affairs. But Mehran, I'm conscious that we've taken up a great deal of your time. So I want to just thank you again so very much for, for giving us your time. It's really, really been fascinating for me as someone who's, who's read your work closely and I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm sure that our listeners will too. So thank you so much. Simon, thank you. I should say that over the years, I have also greatly benefited from your scholarship and all of us are much better for it because of what you've been producing over the last several years. So thank you for this opportunity to share some thoughts with you and thank you for your scholarship. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Mahan. It means a great deal. So thank you very much. And until the next time.